In our third study on the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at another amazing act of Jesus, the Messiah and Son of God. That's the second sea story of Jesus and the disciples. The Gospel of Mark has two sea stories. First one is written in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, where Jesus and disciples caught a sudden storm in the middle of their voyage in the Sea of Galilee. Disciples, including many seasoned fishermen, panicked and screamed at Jesus, We are dying here! And you still napping? When they walk up Jesus with their fear of death, Jesus rebuked the sea and instantly became calm, thus waking up a greater fear among the disciples. The conclusion of the first sea miracle story was, according to Mark 4.41, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, today's story and the second sea miracle story actually answer the question of a first sea story. Who is this? That is a Jesus who can walk on the water just as he walks on the land. Today we will see Jesus the water walker. What does it mean to see Jesus walking on the water? As we read our story, I want us to see three truths behind Jesus walking on the water. So let's read our text today. Mark chapter 6, 45 to 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, the, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood the, about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In order to understand the full significance of a second sea miracle will we'll study the three truths of the story in three parts. So part one, Jesus sending away disciples. Part two, Jesus seeing and their struggle and showing up to them. Part three, serious conclusion. Now, today's uh, story starts with a Mark's favorite word in his gospel. Immediately. Immediately. Immediately from what? Today's event happened right after Jesus performed a great miracle of feeding 5,000 men and their families with a child lunch of five loaves and two fish, which was a happy meal of the first century Galilee with like five small dinner rolls and two anchovies. This miracle of a supernatural feeding 
made the greatest impact on the people so far in Jesus' public ministry. All four Gospels recorded the impact of this miracle. For instance, according to John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, after people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. For the first time, we saw people trying to make Jesus a king by force. Do you think this Galilean crowd was selfish and shameless? How about us? Most Americans, including majority of Christians, cast vote according to their checkbooks or pocket. It does not matter what moral integrity or Christian virtues a politician has, as long as he or she makes the economy strong or better for me. We should duly note, the fact that Jesus rejected this economic and materially driven crowd and may our sacred boarding privilege glorify Jesus more than gratifying our socio-economic positions and materialistic values. Now, guess who was most excited about this popular reception of, to Jesus' feeding miracles beside the crowd? That's the disciples. They thought, finally, their investment to follow Jesus was about to pay off. My goodness, our Jesus brain is about to IPO in a mega way. Hallelujah. Glory to my God to follow Jesus. I was right to give up my fishing career and leaving my family for company of Jesus. This was the context of today's story. In this atmosphere of a euphoria, Jesus totally threw a bucket of cold water to everyone. Our Lord not only rejected and dismissed the crowd, but also directed and rushed his disciples to leave the area immediately. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. The Greek word for, for uh, made his disciple get into the boat is uh, anakazo, has uh, actually has an overtone of a force. Other English Bible translation uh, uh, translated the verse 45 that Jesus insisted or Jesus compelled, Jesus constrained, and the forced the disciple to get on the boat. Now, here we could see a contrasting picture. While unruly crowd tried to make Jesus a king by force, Jesus was trying to make his reluctant disciples to leave the area by force. Why? Jesus wanted to protect and shelter and rescue his disciples and us from false success. False success. What is a false success? False success is everything that gives us illusion and impression of a strength and security without God's truth. When the crowd tried to make Jesus their king by force, they are actually worshipping their own stomachs and knees more than adoring Jesus and obeying him as their true king. They were bargaining with Jesus. You give us a bread, we give you a crown. 
Their real king and modus operandi was their flesh, not in faith in Jesus. Their real object of obedience was their tummy, not the truth of God. They were promising Jesus a political support as long as Jesus would satisfy their stomachs. They attempted to make Jesus a king after their own agenda. Disciples were blind and gullible to this false success and popularity. They forgot what J.A.R. Tolkien said in the Lord of the Ring, Lord of the Ring, that everything that glitters is gold. It's not gold. Not everything shines is a star. Not everything that glitters is a gold. Jesus wanted to save his disciples from this temptation of a false success and bait of a popularity. Rather, Jesus sent the disciples to the struggling void instead of a savoring of false success. Here, we must make an important observation that instead of a false success and popular reception, very soon disciples would experience an amazing truth about Jesus in their frustration and struggles. Yes, when Jesus sent them to the, to the, uh, to the voyage, Jesus, you know, Jesus knew that it's not going to be an easy voyage. And where Jesus sent us, no matter how hard that place is, is far more blessed than where we like to stay and savor. So how about us? Do you want to pursue your own dream of a success and your version of a significance? Or do you want to obey the call of Jesus, even though it means going in the opposite direction or leaving your favorite place or time? Now, Jesus not only, the second, we're going to the second part now. Jesus not only sent away disciples, he also kept watching them over as he prayed for them in the mountain. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Disciples were having a hard time sailing forward because of opposite wind and rough waves. Verse 47 said, Later that day, the boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on the land. He saw the disciples training at the oars, and because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, actual Greek text was a fourth hour, or fourth watch of the night. That's a Roman way of counting hours, and it shows that Mark wrote his gospel to the Roman Christians. The fourth hour is the, uh, was a 3 to 6 a.m. So, yeah, you know, shortly before dawn. Jesus went out to them and walking on the lake. According to John chapter 6, verse uh, 18 and 19, disciples actually rode only 3-4 miles whole night because of strong wind and the rough waves. Once again, don't assume the journey that Jesus sent us is going to be automatically easy and rosy. Often, just like this story, journey of a faith can be exhausting, extra tough, and rough. The good news we, find, we must not miss in this story is that Jesus saw the struggles of disciples and showed himself up for them. It is a great comfort to know Jesus sees me even though I cannot see him. And he sees me because he cares for me. 
By the way, we must also remember the fact that Jesus saw disciples in the pitch dark night from a far distance implies what? He's a supernatural power, supernatural ability to see. Truly, it is a great comfort to see God who sees us. When you look at the uh, uh, Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, there is a great confession. There is a story of a slave girl who run a runaway slave girl named Hagar from her uh, mistress, Sarah, and then God rescued her. And then there, Sarah, uh, uh, Hagar said this, uh, Genesis 16, 13 said, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. In Hebrew, is a El Roy. El means God. Roy is the one who sees me. You are the God who sees me. And I have not seen the one who sees me. That gave a great comfort to this runaway, desperate, and death impending a slave to return home because once she found that God sees her, that gave her great comfort that she knows who is behind her, who cares for her, and she's no longer afraid of a mistress. Now, how do we see God? We see God in His words and through prayers. This is my last pitch for Kushapur uh, College 2021 spring quarter. So if you have not replied, please reply soon because this week we're going to organize classes and your teachers will contact you. And truly, faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. I said many times, faith does not grow automatically. The longer you stay in church, does make you a better Christian. The deeper you dig into God's word, that's how you become a strong Christian. Now, why, what did Jesus do after supernaturally seeing the struggles and toils of his disciples? He decided to come to them directly and help them out personally. Notice here, Jesus actually had a couple of options. One, Jesus could easily rebuke and calm the sea with his word at the shore as he did in, in his first miracle in Mark 4. So disciples could roll easily and move on. Or better option, Jesus could command the wind and waves to change the direction and take the disciples their destination smoothly, effortlessly. But what did he decide to do today? He decided to go to the disciples directly by walking on the water. Why did Jesus decide to come to them directly. Listen to me. Very important. It is because the best way to help the disciples was not just to solve their immediate problem, but to show them who they really believe and follow. The real help is to expand and strengthen the faith. Let me repeat that. Real help is to help others to hold on to God with a stronger grip of a faith and a deeper trust. For the first time, Jesus showed his disciples that he had a control over every physical realm, including the body of the water. 
Jesus decided to show disciples that he can walk on the water just like any surface. Why was walking on the water so significant to the face of disciples? Walking on the water is something that only God can do according to the Old Testament. Look at it. Job 9.8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And also Psalm 77, 19. Your path led through the sea and your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Sea in the Old Testament is a both source of a life in Genesis 1, as well as a domain of a destructive power and the symbol of chaos. God's sovereign power is often expressed in control of our waters. As we all know, God's most famous saving uh, acts in the Old Testament were, man were manifested in delivering His people through and from the water. Noah's flood, exodus and crossing over Red Sea, entrance into the promised land via the flooded Jordan in the springtime. Only one who can tame and overcome the water was God. And thus the divine rescue from the power of water is a frequent theme in Psalms whenever they highlight God's ultimate power. That's what Jesus was showing to disciples. Just like God is powerful to save, is faithful from the water in the Old Testament, so am I. I also control because I am God in flesh. Many New Testament scholars see this sea's miracle as a so-called Christo epiphany, divine manifestation of Jesus Christ as a Yahweh. They believe that's what Mark was trying to convey here with the Old Testament languages and expressions familiar in theophany. For instance, verse 48 says, Jesus went out to them and walking on the water, he was about to pass by them. Pass by them. What does it mean that Jesus was about to pass by them? Then why in the world did he go there? While some commentators are lost in their exegesis, the primary meaning of that expression, and that's a well-known Old Testament language of a theophany. Theophany means God appearing. Let me, uh, let me cite a renowned Markan scholar, William Lanes here. Mark, the event, do we have this quote? Mark, the event is a theophany, a manifestation of a transcendent Lord who will, quote, by, pass by as God did at the Sinai before Moses or on Horeb before Elijah. The text simply uses the language of a theophany familiar from the Septuagint. Septuagint means the Greek Hebrew Bible or Greek Old Testament that New Testament uh, writers used. It is uh, possible the evangelist, Mark, intends his readers to recognize the allusion to Job 9, 8, and 11. He walks upon the waves of the sea. If he goes by me, I will not see him. And if he passes by me, I will not recognize him. In this instance, the divine appearance occurred for the per very purpose of a being seen. In wonderful fashion, Jesus put his authority at the disposal of the disciples and passed by to assure them 
of his presence with them. So, if you look at the uh, uh, Exodus chapter 33, 22, when Moses, when Moses asked God to show his glory, how did God show us? God said, when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. And also, in the first king, chapter 19, when uh, Elijah was very, very uh, uh, depressed because after the winning great spiritual victory at the uh, top, of, top of the Mount Carmel, instead of a, a nationwide repentance, a nasty persecution of uh, Jezebel happened to him. So when he was about to lose his faith, God took him to Mount Horeb. And there God said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain and apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. At the wind there was earthquake, but the Lord was not in the wind. As you know, in the very quiet way, the Lord passed by Elijah. And showing Elijah, Elijah, you know, nationwide repentance is not necessarily my presence. Even though people's reaction is very slow and even silent, I'm still here. I'm still in charge. Just as Yahweh passed by Moses and Elijah in his glory and his whisper, Jesus now walking on the water, quote, passing by and manifesting his divine power and identity to his disciples. Unfortunately, they thought he was a ghost. In Greek text, phantasma. Instead of a face, they are stricken with fear. Uh, it's because it was a common back then, the ancient people believed so-called sea demons. Because they had a, such a negative view of oceans, they thought one of the demonic hideouts uh, was a sea. That's why sea often convulsed like a demon-possessed person. So, for instance, you know, a first-century Talmud said, uh, one rabbi said, the seafarers told me the wave that sink a ship appears with a white fringe of a fire at the crest. And then, the, uh, uh, so seamen, seafarers, they, was they, they struck you know, that, that, that the white fringe of a fire with a club shouting that the, the Yahweh, Yah, the Lord of the hosts, Amen, Amen, Salah. And all of a sudden, that the demon left. So that's the kind of common understanding. So to fearful disciple, verse 50 said, Jesus said what? He spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. In the Greek text, it's, you know, uh, the English is, is I or me, but Greek text is actually I am. I am. And the Greek word for I am is ego eimi. Do we have that? Ego eimi. Yes. Ego eimi. And this ego eimi, I am, is a famous self-revelation of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses asked God his name, God told Moses, I am who I am. Tell Israelite that I am sent you. So here, 
Jesus cannot be clear, clearer about his identity than this intentional self-revelation. And before we get to the conclusion, I want to ask you, do you know and do you believe that Jesus is a Yahweh in flesh? He not only sees our struggles, but he journeys with us in flesh, in his spirit, as a God did with his faithful ones in the Old Testament. So before I move on to the conclusion, I want us to remember, Jesus sees our struggle, my struggle. Jesus knows what I go through. Jesus knows my fear. Jesus knows my anxiety. I checked this week that an uh, uh, interesting fact that uh, the, the most uh, uh, checked out uh, uh, Bible verse in the, in the 2020, according to version, the most popular uh, biblical app in the world, they say over 100, whatever, 60 million people. So one Bible passage, people checked it out more than ever, is uh, Isaiah 43, that do not be afraid, I'm with you. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. Fear is the uh, one, uh, one theme that people searched in the Bible more than any other topic in 2020. And I want to tell you, I said definitely understandable. Fear will return. Every stage of life, every problem, every uncertainty, every trouble, let me tell you, fear will return. But good news is, God sees me. God sees me. Don't ever forget, you are not alone. Now, let's see the conclusion. Verse 51, let's look at it. Then Jesus climbed into the boat with them, and wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the lobes, and their hearts were hardened. As soon as Jesus entered the boat, wind and waves died down like defeated enemies. And disciples were completely amazed. The Greek word for amazed is ecstasy, from which we have an English word ecstatic. Ecstatic literally means act out of, stemi, being, out of being, out of being. Now, less than 24 hours, disciples of Jesus saw his supernatural power uh, uh, in unprecedented way, feeding multitudes supernaturally and abundantly, and walking on the water effortlessly. What do you think about their 24 hours? It's a simply, wow. You know, some of them say, I didn't know a rabbi can surf supernaturally. Man, it's cool. What a day. A great happy ending. Everybody lived happily ever after. Guess what Mark and actually Peter reflected on this great story. Today's story did not end a happy note but a serious, heavy warning. After Mark says the disciples were completely amazed or ecstatic, he said, verse 52, the conclusion verse, they had not understood about the loves and their hearts were hardened. Mark cast more negativity than amazement. 
Actually, Peter, who was eyewitness of this story, confessed that ecstasy was a shameful, for it reveals they missed a great truth. What great truth they missed? They had not understood about the laws. Peter confessed that they ate the physical bread while missing the heavenly bread, Jesus, the bread of life. By the way, why didn't Mark mention fish? Why does he talk about only loves? He's not a, I mean, you know, he doesn't like a fish. By the term bread, scholars think that Mark was giving a pastoral challenge about Eucharist, Eucharist, the communion. Communion was a center of early church's worship. That's where the sacrificial salvation of Christ was celebrated corporally, tangibly, with the bread and wine, and also communally as a family of God. Mark was telling his audience not to eat the bread just physically, but to eat the heart of God and consume his love for us. That's the meaning of coming to the communion. By the way, when Gospel of Matthew recorded today's story, he included uh, Peter's famous request. If you look at the, you know, Matthew 14, 28, do you remember when Jesus walking on the water while disciples were you know, panicked? Peter was a, uh, Peter stood up. Peter said, if Mark 14, 28 said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Do you remember the, the rest of the story, right? So Peter was the only, I mean, beside Jesus, only human who walked on the water. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Peter, what's it like it? You know, I'm definitely going to ask him. And then maybe, you know, by then we all can walk on the water, right? Yeah, I definitely want to try. I want to run in the water. Yes. But, However, the Mark's gospel was completely silent about the Peter's bold-faced adventure. As you heard several times by now, Mark's primary source about Jesus' life was Peter. I must confess that when I was planning our Gospel of Mark series, I assumed the famous Peter's face adventure was Mark's account. I initially thought about preaching Peter walking on the and Peter's walking on the water by faith. That shows that I need to read a Bible just like anybody <laughs> because I confuse about the gospel account. And also I confess that I underestimated Apostle Peter. Peter was not egomaniac or boastful at all. Peter didn't tell Mark that. Mark, guess what? I walked with Jesus, you know. He didn't say that. Rather, Peter said nothing positive about himself or our disciples. Rather, a shocking confession was a final comment of the story. Verse 52. Let's look at it again. They had not understood about love, and their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Now, in Greek text, their hearts are actually singular, cardia. Singular. So that means their heart, not heart, their heart was hardened. So it suggests a collective failure. 
The expression harden the heart implies a serious warning, almost a condemnation. When you hear the expression that someone's heart was hardened, what Old Testament character and story comes to your mind? The one character in the Old Testament whose heart was constantly hardened toward God was a Pharaoh in the story of Exodus. Every time God showed his superior power and second chance mercy to the Pharaoh, what did he do? He hardened his heart toward God. Instead of repenting, Pharaoh always relapsed into his own hegemony. If you look at the ten plagues in the book of Exodus, you will find that God was not just actually defeating the false, god of, uh, false gods of Egypt, but also delivering Egyptians, especially Pharaoh, from their false reality. Starting with the first plague on the Nile, and the ninth plague on the sun, on the sun and also last plague on the firstborn, God was revealing his true power and thus rendering a redemptive opportunity to the Pharaoh. But guess what? Even though Pharaoh saw God's power and truth more and personally close than anyone, he did not change his heart toward God and try to keep his status quo. He preferred his alternate self-made reality to God's true reality. That's the hardened heart. Hardened heart is an unchanged heart after hearing Holy God. Hardened heart is a stubborn, selfish heart, a self-obsessed heart, even after receiving Christ's affections. Later, when God called Isaiah, God described Isaiah's mission to Israelite as a mission to people of a hardened heart. Isaiah 6, 9 says, He said, Go and tell these people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Here is another description of a hardened heart. And some commentators said, that's the final verse of a Mark story was referring to, the Isaiah 6-9. And Peter was confessing here and challenging all of us. Do you just hear God's word without understanding his heart? Do you just see God's stories without perceiving the true reality? Does God's truth affect your sense of reality, sense of time? The critical Kairos history. We are not just living through the history. We are living in the redemptive history of God. We are living in the last lack of redemptive history of God. Because of God's full, complete revelation of His heart in Jesus Christ, you and I can talk about God more confidently with more conviction, with more commitment than any time in human history. We don't have any more speculation about God. God revealed himself in human realm and human life in the most concrete and most amazing way. Thus, God's truth affects our sense of reality. Do we just accumulate the biblical knowledge as a more interesting information? or our cores affected by 
holy inspiration. A pastor once said, If a heart becomes hardened, I become dry. A theologian replied, If a heart becomes hardened, intellect is darkened. If a heart becomes hardened, intellect is darkened. Let me end today's story with a quote from A.W. Tozer. God may allow his servant to succeed when he has disciplined him to a point where he does not need to succeed to be happy. Let me repeat that. God may allow his servant to succeed when he has disciplined him to a point where he does not need to succeed to be happy. The man who is elated by success and is cast down by failure is still a carnal man. At best, his fruit will have a worm in it. Do you, now, do we need to be successful to be happy? Do you need a successful do you need to be a successful to be happy? You need a heart surgery. You need to know heart of God. Dear Forest family, we are more than successful. We are more than successful. We are sovereignly blessed. We are eternally successful and wealthy and rich in Jesus Christ. We are served by Almighty God, the maker of heavens and earth, who sent His only Son as a servant Lord and sacrificial lamb for us. And He also sent us His Holy Spirit to indwell us as our comforter and guide. And we are called to serve one and only eternal King and His kingdom. And our King gave and bled His heart for sinners. Do we need to be successful to be happy? You don't know the heart of God. How is our heart today? Is our heart is a craving for the popularity and success and security more than God's love and affection and calling and mission? Let us pray. The Lord, soften my heart. Soften my heart with the love of Jesus. Let's pray.